not You're right. not going to Liberty anymore or Liberty shut down? Well, luckily I'm doing Liberty University online, so nothing's really changed for me. <laughs> oh, all right. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate you joining me today. I understand that there's uh, your father is experiencing an illness, so your time spending talking to me uh, absolutely means a lot, and your family sure. and him are in my prayers, so I appreciate Thanks. that. Thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah, so here on the Walk Podcast, uh, for the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about apologetics, and I was actually introduced to your work because I watched The Case for Christ on Netflix about Lee Strobel's life, and my girlfriend happened to t show me your book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and oh, good. I absolutely amazed because I didn't realize that you didn't just have to have faith, you know, to defend Christianity. There's actual evidence and facts. Right. So we've been discussing a lot of those points and I thought what better way to talk about some of this stuff than talking to the man himself. So sure, absolutely. Happy to do it. Let's let's do it, man. Are we recording right now? Oh yeah, we're live. We're going. All right, good. Yeah. So first question, just a little bit about yourself. When did you realize God was calling you into the field of apologetics? Well, I came to faith through apologetics. I came to faith by reading Josh McDowell books, you know, Evidence the Man's a Verdict, More Than a Carpenter. And I was always interested in that topic. Um, but I was in the Navy when all that happened. I had to wait till I got out of the Navy. And then I, uh, my family and I moved down here to Charlotte, North Carolina to attend a seminary with uh, Dr. Norman Geiser. He was the president at the time. This is back in 1993, we moved here. And uh, then we had the opportunity to write a couple of books. One of them is, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And the previous one we wrote together was called Legislating Morality. So uh, I was interested in it because I always wanted to know if it was true. And uh, once I realized it was true, I wanted to tell more people about it in that context to say, look, it's not just a wishful thinking kind of religion. It's really true. It really happened. There is a God. Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was God. So, so yeah. that's, uh, that's how I got interested in it. Actually, well, thank you for your service. I actually didn't know that you served in the Navy. So thank you. Navy stands for never again, volunteer yourself, Trevor. Remember that. Oh yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. So in, you know, you travel through universities and you, you provide seminars for students and you answer a lot of questions and as well with that, you do a lot of debates. So my question is, was there ever a time where you were confronted with a serious doubt? And if so, how did you overcome it? Well, yeah, I, I, I like what Ravi Zacharias says about that, who needs prayer right now, because you know he's very sick. Uh, but he said, it's not so much doubts as questions. There are many things we don't have answers to. And everyone has questions. I have questions I don't have answers to. But the... In fact, every worldview does. Whether you're in, you could be an atheist, a, someone who's just apathetic. You could have, you'd be a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu. You know, you, everyone has questions that you don't have answers to. But when I look at Christianity, I realize that it best explains reality the way it is. Uh, are there areas that we don't have answers to? Of course. Um, probably the biggest question that unbelievers have and even Christians have is, not why does God uh, allow evil, because that's easily answered by saying, well, of course, he's got to allow free will. And if we don't have the free will to do evil, we really don't have free will, right? I mean, yeah. um, but why does he allow certain kinds of evil? Uh, why did this particular baby die? Or why did this particular 
tsunami hit or, and there's really no way of answering that because we don't have the kind of perspective we need. So that leaves questions. And sometimes we don't have answers to those questions, but we know why we don't have answers because we're finite. We're limited in this space time continuum, whereas God is outside of it all. And he can see the end from the beginning. He can see how events ripple forward into the future to affect other events and other people. So I, I have questions like that all the time. I, I just, and I know why I can't get good answers or complete answers, I should say, for that very reason. Yeah. So in discussing apologetics with somebody, I know sometimes it can be a difficult conversation depending on who you're talking to. And this is also an issue in politics most of the time as well. How do you handle a situation when you're discussing apologetics and somebody decides to start attacking your character rather than just discussing your different beliefs and evidence? Well, I just would point out, like, why would you say such a thing? Or what is your evidence for that? Or what do you mean by that? I mean, I was, you know, I've been called a bigot. So I asked, what do you mean by bigotry? One guy said, fear and intolerance. I said, no, that's not the definition of bigotry. The definition of bigotry is, is to have an opinion on something or draw a conclusion without even checking the issue out, having no evidence for it, just deciding this is the way it is. Yeah. And I said to him, he, had to, he happened to be a same-sex marriage advocate. I said to him, look, with all due respect, if anyone is bigoted, it would be you because you have a position on my position and you don't even know why I hold my position. I've written an entire book on this, which you haven't read. And so you're calling me a name without even knowing why I hold the position I hold. Yeah. Look, names, look, I'm from New Jersey. I don't care if people call me names. <laughs> it's not an argument, right? A name's not an argument. Yeah. Right. I can call somebody a jerk or I can call somebody ignorant, but that's not an argument. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be true the guy's a jerk. It may be true the guy's ignorant, but that's not an argument as to yeah. why my position's true and his position's false. You have yeah. to give evidence. Truth stands regardless mm-hmm. of what they want to say, right. not be personal. Gotcha. Now, in your, in your book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, you discuss the cosmological, teleological, and moral law arguments. And mm-hmm. my question to you is, Personally, which of those do you find the most interesting? Well, I actually, well, interesting, I, I like the cosmological argument because it, it gives you more attributes of God. You know, if space, time, and matter literally had a beginning, then the cause of that beginning must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, and intelligent. I like that argument because, well, it starts at the beginning. You know, there was a beginning, so there must be a beginner. But in terms of what argument is most relevant to people today is probably the moral argument because, look, you can ignore the fact that there was a beginning. You can ignore the incredible fine-tuning of the universe and the design we see in life. You can ignore all that. It's really hard to ignore morality because the very same people who claim that there is no God have all sorts of moral judgments they make, and they think they're absolutely right, whether it's an issue like same-sex marriage or abortion or um sir you know someone has certain rights well look if there's no god there's no rights to anything right everything's just a matter of opinion it's just your opinion against say hitler's opinion or your opinion against somebody else's opinion if there is no standard beyond all of us and that standard is god's nature so i see people making moral judgments all the time and and at the same time they're claiming there is no god well it's not a real true moral judgment it's just your opinion yeah. And that's why I wrote the book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. Because Absolutely. And I understand you have a course for your book, Stealing from God. And I was wondering if you'd like to give an opportunity to people to know how they can register for that. 
Oh yeah, that course is coming up next week where we do an online course uh, on, we use Zoom like we're using right now for Q&A. We, we come online uh, couple, you know, once a week or so or once every other week and answer questions. Uh, the video course, it, they watch the videos before they get to the Q&A obviously and go through the, the questions and then we, we talk about it like we're talking now. And if they go to crossexamine.org and click on online courses, they can see that course and a bunch of other courses. The one that we're about to run live is the Stealing from God course, which starts uh, next week, which would be like the week of May 18th, something like that. They can jump in a little bit after that if they miss that deadline. We're still, I mean, it's a 10-week course, so they, they can yeah. come in anytime they want. Gotcha. Well, here on the Walk podcast, what, what we believe is that everybody has their own unique and personal experience and their own walk with Christ. And within those walks, we can be confronted with doubts or questions or just confusion. And sometimes we decide just to push those questions away rather than to be confronted with it. And I believe that if we can find answers to some of those questions, then we can have more confidence in our faith. And so mm -hmm. I'd like to discuss some of those questions that some people that might have, some questions I've had throughout my life, and sure. see if we can find some answers to help you know grow our faith and have more uh, opportunity to be able to defend it. Okay. And so first one question that one of my Bible study leaders confronted with me and my group of guys one time was, would you say that it was harder for people in biblical times or harder for people now to believe and accept God? Well, that's a hard question to answer because I didn't live in biblical times. So, <laughs> um, and uh, biblical times is a long time. I mean, we don't know how far back we go to creation, but let's just take it from Abraham. You know, from Abraham to Jesus is about 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. That's a long time. And of course, from Jesus to us is about 2,000 years. So I think we have a lot more information now about God than they did, quite obviously. Um, now, you might say the people who were with Jesus and saw him resurrected from the dead had the best evidence that he was God. But to whom much is given, much will be required, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they they were more culpable than people who hadn't seen him directly. This is why, of course, John says, blessed are those who haven't seen and believed. He's not saying that evidence isn't important because in the, just right after that section of scripture, he says, these things were written down so that you may know that Jesus is the savior and they may have life in his name. In other words, he's saying on the testimony, the eyewitness testimony that, that we as the apostles have, we are, we we are showing you that this really happened and this really is true and you may have life by trusting in Jesus. So it's still an evidentiary argument. It's just that the people who saw the evidence directly are the apostles and not us. Now, there are other ways of, of pointing out that God exists even without any import from history. I mean, you can show that there's a beginning, as we mentioned, it's fine-tuned. There's a moral law out there. There must be a moral law giver. Uh, there's the direct witness of the Holy Spirit. These are all what reasons that you can say, well, I think that God exists. But um, the idea of whether it's more difficult now than then to believe in God, I, I really couldn't make a, a valid judgment because, as I say, yeah. I don't have the perspective of the of the 2,000 years or even longer than that prior to prior to us. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying you're 2,000 years old. I'm not definitely right. Not that. <laughs> gotcha. So in, in terms of the Bible, I think many people, especially new believers, can be confused when it comes to the fact that there's so many different versions of the Bible. 
So first off, why are there so many versions of the Bible? And second, which one would you suggest you personally use? You're talking about translations? Yeah, translations. Yeah, well, the reason there are many translations is because there's many different ways that you can communicate truth. You've got the very literal translation all the way through the paraphrase translation. And I think just about every version of the Bible is fine to use except the perversion known as the New World Translation, because the New World Translation is the Jehovah's Witness Translation, and they deliberately change the text in a couple of areas in order to fit their theology. Mm-hmm. Um, what they, what's said in the Greek is not said in the English version that they have come up with. Uh, but for devotional use or just e- everyday use, I use the NIV. I call it the Nearly Inspired Version because it has advantages and disadvantages. If I want to know what the real literal translation is, I might go to the New American Standard Bible or the ESV or the New King James. If I want more of a, a paraphrase, more modern day language, maybe the New Living Bible, something like that. And they all have their strengths and weaknesses. I think it's important to actually read all of them when you're reading a text and trying to understand what the text means. In fact, we have a course called How to Interpret Your Bible, and that's one of the things we recommend. Read all of them, because there's many different ways to communicate the truth uh, translated you know, from Greek or from Hebrew into English. Mm-hmm. And it's already an interpretation when you're reading it, because the translators have to, in some sense, interpret uh, the, the Greek or the Hebrew into English. So it's an interpretation already. And some people will say, well, isn't the literal translation necessarily better? No, not necessarily. It might be in certain areas, but let me give you an example of this. You remember the story in the Old Testament where the account where uh, Saul is trying to find David, he wants to kill David, and David's hiding in a cave, and Saul goes into the cave. Do you remember this? Yeah. And Saul could have, I mean, David could have killed Saul right there, but he said, I I don't want to touch the Lord's anointed. So he doesn't, he doesn't touch him. Mm-hmm. Well, the account says that Saul went into the cave to cover his feet. I mean, if you're reading, say the King James, the new King James or the NASB or something, that's what it's going to say to cover his feet. Now, I don't even know what that means. You know what that means? I well, cover your feet. What are you talking about? Then I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you go to a NIV, you know, more thought-for-thought translation, kind of in between the paraphrase and the uh, literal, they translate it for you because cover your feet is an idiom. Uh, It's a saying, and cover your feet meant to urinate. Now, I don't know about you, but when I urinate, I want to be a little bit more precise than covering my feet, don't you? Yeah. Like I want to go a little further out than that. <laughs> but that's what they that's what they called it, cover your feet. So if you're reading the NASB, you don't know what you don't or the New King James, you're going, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. But if you're reading the NIV, you go, Oh, he went in to relieve himself. Gotcha. I get it now. So sometimes yeah. the the paraphrase or the less literal can be more helpful to you. Yeah, so just going through different translations can help you get a wider and more versatile understanding of what you're reading rather than... Right, a more robust appreciation for what's being communicated. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of Christianity as a whole, obviously there's many different branches of Christianity. I'm personally, I go to a second Baptist church, so that's me. But in my community, there's so many different, you know, walks of life. We have 
people who are Catholic, Presbyterian, all these different branches. So my question is, first off, how, why are there so many different branches of Christianity? In addition to that, how do we know which one to follow? And does it really yeah, because, matter? Yeah, because there are so many people, that's why. Mm -hmm. I mean, you get 10 people around you and you ask them for an opinion on something, you might get 20 different opinions, right? I mean, people yeah. have different opinions. And um, so it's not just true of Christianity, it's true of, of anything. Mm -hmm. Now, the issue here, though, is, is what is the truth, not, not to what do people believe about the truth. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you look at the major sections of Christianity, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholicism, and Protestantism, they all agree on what we would call the essentials of the faith. They all agree there is a God, you are not him. They all agree that uh, we're sinners and that Jesus came and was deity and lived the perfect life in our place. And by trusting in him, you can have your sins forgiven. And they also obviously believe in the resurrection of the dead and his second coming. Everybody believes in that. And they all believe in grace. Now, particularly with the Roman Catholics, they believe that there has to be an element of works in there as well. But they still believe grace is necessary. Now, we can argue about this all day. Um, I personally think that there is a distinction between what is known as justification and sanctification. Justification mm -hmm. is how you get saved. Sanctification is how you become more and more like Jesus. Justification happens in an instant. Sanctification is over a whole lifetime. Mm -hmm. The Catholics tend to conflate those two things, whereas the Protestants say, no, they're two separate things. Okay. Now, in... These three major areas of Christianity, you have some subdenominations. Roman Catholics have denominations too. They're just called orders. You know, you got Franciscans, you've got Jesuits, you've got Dominicans. You know, they, they don't, they're still, and to a certain extent, denominations. Yeah. Different emphases, if you will. Uh, but if they're conservative, meaning if they really believe the Bible's true, even despite their differences, they believe in the essentials of the faith. The Christianities that are Christianities, put in quotes, that are out there that don't believe the Bible's true, the liberal groups, well, they hardly even believe in God. My co-author, Dr. Norman Geiser, used to say that these denominations are like hymn singing rotary clubs, right? They're not, they're not really Christian, even though they claim to be Christian, because they deny some of the essentials of the faith. Yeah. And so, look, if you're not going to believe in God, you're not going to believe the Bible. Well, why even meet? What's the point? Right. Okay. Why call yourself Christian? Why call yourself Christian if you're going to disagree with Jesus? Exactly. Right. So on the on the essentials, on the main things, the plain things, what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity, the major denominations of Christian of Christianity, the major sections, Greek Orthodox, uh, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. It, the conservative aspects of those three, they all agree on the essentials. Okay. Now, I actually think denominations are a good thing to a certain extent because some, many of the denominations are divided over minor secondary or tertiary issues like mode of baptism or um, even worship style, right? Well, having different worship styles is a good thing. Yeah. Some people are brought to the foot of the cross through more a liturgical service, others a more free-flowing service. So I think there's some good and diversity, unity and diversity in denominations. Yeah, because people are so different. So having different ways of people to come to find the truth and to accept God is still okay. That's right. Yeah. 
So in talking about the Bible, in the Old Testament, Exodus 10, 20, it says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. And I think many people, including myself previously, could get confused with this because it kind of goes against the idea of free will. So would you say that the only reason it was written this way because it was written observationally? No, because well, a couple of reasons it's written that way. Number one, Pharaoh hardened his heart first. And God completed the process because he knew Pharaoh wasn't going to repent. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. He doesn't use the word hardened, but he says, if you suppress the truth long enough, God will give you up to your own desires. He will leave you alone, in other words, because that's what a loving God do, does. He doesn't force himself on anybody. He leaves you alone. That's ultimately what hell is. You're, you're separated from God. But the second reason the word hardened is used is because Paul in Romans and Moses in Exodus, they both under, this is where this word hardened is used, they both understand what the Egyptians believed about the afterlife. The Egyptians believed that for a pharaoh or anybody to make the afterlife, in the afterlife, their heart would be judged to see if they were if they could be admitted into the afterlife. Their heart would be put on a scale against a feather. And if the feather weighed heavier than the heart, then the pharaoh was put into the afterlife, into paradise. But if the heart weighed heavier than the feather, then a dog-looking beast would devour the heart and the, and the pharaoh would not be admitted to the afterlife. So when Moses is using the word hardened, he's, he's basically saying that pharaoh is being judged because his heart is heavy. It's going to be heavier than a feather. And in the afterlife, he's going to be judged. Mm -hmm. So this goes to show you that Moses knew the Egyptian culture and the Egyptian belief system. This is not just a random use of the word hardened. He's basically pointing this out, that he understands. Just like, by the way, the plagues. What are the plagues? The plagues, most of the plagues are slams on Egyptian gods. So they worship the Nile. What does God do? He, he, he turns the Nile to blood. There was, a, there was a God associated with the Nile. They worship frogs. You want frogs? I'm going to give you frogs. Here they come. <laughs> they worship the sun. So what does God do? He blots out the sun as the God Ra. Mm -hmm. they, they, they thought the Pharaoh was a, a deity or a practical deity. So he's supposed to have power over life, right? What does he do? Kills the firstborn. Mm -hmm. These are all slams on the Egyptian gods. It just goes to show you, they, this, is, this is a real, real world historical account. This is yeah. not invented. It's not mythological. This shows no. that he, he was, had an understanding of the culture that was back right. then, for sure. So in regards to the New Testament, uh, when I was actually at Liberty for a week, for a college for a weekend thing that we had going on there, uh, I was able to go to different classes and I was able to attend an apologetics class just for like, you know, one class period, just to kind of get an idea of what the classes there are like. And the teacher uh, asked the class a question that I'm still kind of confused about today. And there's, there, I think there's pretty good evidence on both sides, depending on people's opinion. But the question is, so it is known that in Jesus's life, he did not sin. The question is, could he have? Yeah, Christian theologians disagree over that. I think, yeah, he could have. Mm -hmm. And if he couldn't, how could he be our example, right? Yeah. yeah, he had the power to sin, but he didn't. He was tempted just like all of us were, but he never gave in to the temptation. So yeah, I think he had a human nature, 
and he could sin. Now, the difference in his human nature and our human nature is he didn't have the sin nature. Mm-hmm. Now, that, so he didn't have any sin that he had to pay for himself. Yeah. He's our perfect sacrifice. This is why the virgin conception, it wasn't really a virgin birth. He was born just like everybody else. But the virgin conception is theologically important, not just because it's a miracle, but because the reason Jesus had a human nature that wasn't uh, tainted by sin was because he was conceived directly through the Holy Spirit, which seems to indicate that, unfortunately, depravity is passed through, original sin is passed through the man. It doesn't come from the woman, it comes from the man, right? <laughs> because Mary, Mary had Jesus, it was her egg, but it was the Holy Spirit that inseminated the egg or fertilized the egg so Jesus could come forth. Yeah. So although Jesus didn't sin, we can still look to him as an example. We can still relate to him. You know, like, like you said, he was, yeah. mountain, he was tempted by the devil. And if you right. sin, then what's temptation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as you know, I'm a student right now, and I've recently decided that my end goal is now going to be a doctorate degree in theology apologetics. And uh, I'm going to be doing that through Liberty University Online. Great. So my question is, do you have any advice for me or anybody who's getting into apologetics or any sort of this evidence? Because it can be a crazy journey. Well, I think you're, you're taking the right route already, and that is to get a formal education in it. The reason for that is it doesn't just give you credibility, but it also lets you know resources and information that you need to know that you don't know you need to know. In mm-hmm. other words... I read so much material in my doctoral program that I never even knew existed. And I wouldn't have known these things existed unless I went through the program. And it turns out many of the things that I read were important to me being an apologist now, particularly all the courses we took on philosophy, because philosophy is the ground of everything we do. Without philosophy, you can't even understand the Bible. You can't understand the newspaper. You can't understand anything without philosophy. As you know, the PH and the PhD stands for philosophy, mm-hmm. whatever it is, philosophy of history, philosophy of science, philosophy of physics, whatever it is, it's philosophy. So that's number one, get your degree, which is what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Number two, I would say major in the majors, don't major in the minors, focus on the big issues. Don't focus on the secondary issues that don't affect whether or not Christianity is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can argue about the age of the earth all day. Okay whether it's old or young, you still need a creator, right? Uh, We can argue about um, secondary issues that don't affect the heart of Christianity. Even even evolution is a secondary issue. Even if macroevolution's true, and I study it, I don't think it's true, but even if it were to be true, it wouldn't defeat Christianity. It may change how we interpret the early chapters of Genesis, but it wouldn't mean there's no God. It wouldn't mean that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Um, those are a couple of the issues that a lot of people uh, spend a lot of time investigating and they don't realize, I mean, I'm glad they're investigating it, but they don't seem to realize that regardless of which side you come down on those issues, it's not going to change whether or not Christianity is true. Yeah. So as you know, there are four issues that I concentrate on, truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. If truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible and Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, game over. Everything else is detail. So those are the two things that I would really recommend you do. 
get your formal education and then focus on the big issues. Don't get wrapped around the axle on little things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can investigate them, but, yeah. but, but don't, don't think it's not a hill to die on. Don't think that that's something that, um, you need to spend a whole ton of time on. You really need to spend time on those big issues, the essentials yeah. of the faith. Absolutely. Now, questions and all questions on a more serious note. What came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> God came first. God How about came that? First. There we go. In order to create a chicken or an egg, there had to be God. Absolutely. For, in order for anything to exist. In fact, that's the, the classic question that the philosopher Leibniz proposed. If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? Mm-hmm. I mean, why does anything exist if there is no self-existing being? Yep, and it takes more faith to believe that nothing created everything out of nothing, right? That's right. Everybody believes in at least one miracle. Mm-hmm. Atheists believe in the miracle that nothing created something. Christians believe in the miracle that someone created something. Yep. So it seems to me it takes more faith, blind faith, to believe that no one created something out of nothing. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been just an incredible opportunity, and it's just so awesome to be able to talk to you and answer some of those questions. And if you want to just take some time, tell people what you've got going on, where they can find you, what, where they can find your books, your resources, anything like that, go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Trevor. Well, crossexamine.org is our website. If they go there, they can see everything we're doing including our YouTube channel, which has hundreds of videos on it, and uh, our Facebook page, and our Instagram account, and our Twitter feed, and all that. Uh, And uh, we do a live stream every day. At least we're doing it during this lockdown period. It's 1130 a.m. Eastern time. They can go to our YouTube channel and see that, or our website. They can get our app, the Cross-Examined app, two words in the App Store, Cross-Examined. We do a TV show every week, and we also do a radio program every week. So all that they can access from that app, the uh, cross-examined app. So I, I hope, in fact, uh, it's kind of blurred back there, but there's oh, yeah, the cross-examined.org <laughs> right back there. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Hopefully, we get to do this in person sometime in the future, but I'm still thankful that you're able to join me on Zoom today. Well, thank you, Trevor. Tell me about your uh, education. What year are you at Liberty? So I just completed my first year. I just started summer classes, and so I'm going to be pursuing a undergrad of biblical studies. And then I think after that, going towards a master of apologetics and then a doctorate degree in theology and apologetics. So are you working full time right now? Yeah, I actually work at Chick-fil-A. So oh, good. yeah, I'm a certified trainer with Chick-fil-A, uh, work like 40 hours a week, but it's really fun. And being able to do online classes allows me to do that as well as serve at my church. Um, if quarantine wasn't happening, I would have been doing an internship with my church. So Got a lot, a lot of stuff going on, but I'm thankful that I have a job right now. So. I love Chick-fil-A. That's God's chicken. Yes, I've got sir. A, it's I've got a couple of friends who are owners of Chick-fil-A's up here. Yeah, it's a great organization, so I'm glad you're with them. Good yes, stuff. Sir. My pleasure. <laughs> All right, Trevor. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. See ya. See ya.